Hello everybody and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. When I was a young teenager, I had a trip to my aunt's mountain house. And I was playing Monopoly with my cousin late one night and we were listening to the radio and somehow on the radio we heard news of a coup in a place we had grown up to be fearful of and to hate that place was then called the Soviet Union. That year was 1992. I remember we quit playing Monopoly. That was no mean feat for, for us when we were kids back then. And we sat there and listened to this accounting of a what at that time was thought to be a successful coup attempt that ended up being a failed coup attempt to try and depose Mikhail Gorbachev. Later in my life, I would go to college and then I would go back to college. And when I went back to college, I would learn that this was a tectonic moment in world history and that the Cold War had in fact ended with a failed coup attempt against Mikhail Gorbachev. I'm not sure as an adult if we were to ask Vladimir Putin if the Cold War ever in fact ended. But that's fast-forwarding a little too far. When I was 12 years old, I began a fascination with the Soviet Union. But I wasn't fascinated about it because of communism or because of whatever, <laughs> I was fascinated with it because at the tender age of 12 or 13, I had somehow had the understanding that I had lived to see a truly stupefying world event. It's not every day that major powers fall, for sure. Anyway, one of the things I wanted to do with this podcast when I started talking to what I call average normal people was talk about the fall of the Soviet Union. And I also love to get recent immigrants' opinion of, of our, my country, the U.S. About two or three weeks ago, I was 
surfing the internet looking for guests for my show, The History Voyager. And I ran across some chatter on Twitter. I remember it was Twitter. About how the situation in the Ukraine was going. And I thought, well, I I would like to talk to an average normal person in the Ukraine. So I made up a thread and I tweeted it to somebody who I knew would have Twitter contacts from an Eastern European diaspora. If you're listening, hi, how are you? I, I hope you're doing well. Um. Anyway, so that person tweeted it and then other people tweeted it and and I had a inbox full of DMs and and then I thought, okay, well to add fuel to this metaphorical fire, what I'll do is I'll go on Reddit because I'm a member of the democracy subreddit and some other subreddits that people in despotic and dicey places tend to hang out online. And I did. I, I found two people at least who came to talk to me. One of them you've already heard, or he's on the feed. I highly recommend listening to it. He's a young man who's from the Ukraine, who lives there now. But this fellow is a software engineer or somebody in the IT field in the south or in the Bay Area. And we had a very, very long conversation. Um, I say conversation. It was a monologue, really. You'll you'll hear me interject. But basically, it was a monologue. And he talked about growing up under communism. And he talked about Ukrainian history, which was fascinating. And he talked also about his observations about America and his general love of democracy. Well, I think it's a fascinating talk. And it has a few warts, but, you know, they're not that important. (laughs) So I'm going to throw it out online and I I want him to come back if he wants to come back Lord knows he spent a little bit over two hours and ten minutes with me last night Uh, but um, it was very interesting it was a very interesting conversation but I I thought I'd add something to it and the thing I think I'm going to add to it is I think In this country, I I think we have decided, and by we, who is we? We is the um, intelligent yet relatively unpowerful person. I think we have decided that Vladimir Putin is not really our problem. The thing I'd like to say to that is that, you know, history, while it doesn't necessarily repeat itself, 
it certainly can rhyme or, you know, seem rather similar to other times further along. I, I wonder as the time goes by if Vladimir Putin would think the Cold War ended. It would do well to remember that he was a KGB officer before he was given the keys to the Soviet Union or to Russia. Now, Mr. Putin apparently will tell people all day long that he wants to basically reconstitute the Russian Empire because he worries for Russia's safety. Well, okay, Russia's a nuclear power. NATO has no real desire to invade the Ukraine or anywhere else Russia-adjacent. Um, those of us old enough to have lived to see 2014 would say would say that's probably true if we thought about it. I really don't want or approve of or like the idea that somebody's opinion of of a person who is trying who would try to do America harm. I don't like the fact that his the opinion of this person by average by average yet intelligent people has become a proxy for um, domestic political opinions and domestic political tribalism, which really, if you think about it, that's what our politics are. When I went back to college, I read a book by a man named Francis Fukuyama. Francis Fukuyama wrote a book that actually guided policy from both parties for years. It was called The End of History. I think, and I thought this after 9-11, and I think it now, especially now, The End of History was a fairy tale. It was a fairy tale written by adherence of a political philosophy. And they wrote it not for us, not for the common person, but for each other, because they wanted to tell each other that the world was going to live peaceably now because the Soviet Union had ended. It was it was very, very, very blindsided by basically the entire rest of the world. And also it didn't really fold in the notion of belief or even the notion that perhaps the Cold War didn't end. Perhaps what it did was pause. Again, I, I don't know if it ended or paused or whatever. I'm just a guy out here getting oral histories from people and putting them on the internet in the form of a podcast. But I want you to give Tim Bybitch your full attention for the 
approximately two hours and two minutes. He's a fascinating man. I want to have him back on. I think he has a lot to say. And um, as always, believe it or not, I'm having a good day. And I hope you are too. But that doesn't mean that there aren't serious things out there that need people's attention. There aren't serious monsters that go bump in the night. And Vladimir Putin is one of those monsters. Okay, folks. Have a nice day. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ben Kitchings, and I'm here with Tim Babich. Babich. Last last name is Babich. Babich. Yeah. Okay. Um, Okay. I think I'm going to let you say that. (laughs) Um, Sure. Something about American accents in Ukrainian. I don't know if that's going to come out right. Um, anyway, um, thank you for coming on. Uh, you are a, you grew up in the Ukraine, but you live in LA. I am San Francisco, San Francisco, San, Bay Area. San Francisco. And I wanted to talk to you because of what's going on in the Ukraine. I, I was wondering if you'd want to talk about your childhood and basically reflect on America and that kind of thing. So, <laughs> yeah. Please where do on. you where do you want to start? Reflecting on America, or um, talking about childhood? Uh, well, I think I will start with childhood, then slowly get to um, my experiences living here for the past four years. Um, so I was born in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine in 1980 and my parents were engineers one was radio engineer and my mother was a computer engineer in a Mm -hmm. big company which was called antonov airplane design bureau which was doing transport airplanes Um, they have created the largest airplane in the world called antonov 225 and it was designed to transport the soviet uh, copy uh, uh, basically their implementation of space shuttle they could not transport space shuttle by any other means so they just took the largest airplane they had and made it even bigger so that that airplane could lift that shuttle to a launch pod and maybe even eventually launch it into space but mm-hmm. it did not work. Um, and I can get to Ukrainian history in general, just like a trajectory of my parents. Like they were first generation which went into cities. Um, they were from villages and they went to study in Kharkiv University. Kharkiv is second largest city in Ukraine. It is in the east. and it is also currently in the news often because it's like only 30 kilometers to Russian border. Mm-hmm. Um, they are obviously very worried about what is going to happen in the next coming weeks or maybe a month mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. because the tensions are getting 
up to a point where we will see what happens. Um, and so about my parents, their story is that they went into university and it wasn't easy back in the day. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, um, the village villages were not allowed in the Soviet times to leave their villages. You had mm-hmm. to get a special permit to leave your village. Um, so it was almost like a serfdom, like a serf is not allowed to leave his lord's um, lands, right? That's what serfdom is. And Correct, in Soviet, yes. and in Soviet times, they had this system where you had to have a special permit to travel elsewhere. If you, there were a couple of ways to get out of village. One of those ways was to enlist in the army. That was open for men. And mm. second was to try to get into university which is obviously was difficult for people who were growing up in the countryside because there were not many good schools in there and the education was quite bad and so the education is quite bad and you cannot go to pass the exam in the university so Mm -hmm. and here i can get to third generation of my family it's how it happened for them is that on my mother's side, um, her father was um, collective farm manager, a big guy mm-hmm. in a collective farm. So he used his connections to get her a permit to go and try. And my father was from teacher's family. So obviously he had better education than other guys in that village. Mm-hmm. So third generation of my family was in villages and collaborated with Soviet regime in some ways, because you cannot survive in Soviet Union if you were not collaborating. And of course, if you even could survive, you would definitely not be doing great. And your children would not be doing great either. So, and my parents went to university and after the university, they were recruited into that big government corporation which was doing airplanes and moved to kiev and in kiev okay in kiev they lived in a corporate apartment um what is especially different about united states and kiev is that kiev was planned as a city reliant on public transportation and mm-hmm. while we complain complained about it that it could be better it's no match to public transportation say of berlin but it was definitely better than we have than something that is present here in the united states except new york Mm. (laughs) it was a surprise for me because um i have visited united states a couple of times um one for conference and i lived in new york for like four months before that in year 2016 and when i moved to bay area in 2018 it surprised me that uh, you basically cannot go anywhere unless you have a car i was not really prepared for that somehow (laughs) so that's one big difference between living 
in a city with public transportation and living in America, it's how much car reliant America is. Mm-hmm. And even in not so well-to-do country as Ukraine, the public transportation worked better because it is expected that people were relying on public transportation to get to stores, to get to schools, to get to their work. Um, mm-hmm. When I was living in Kiev and I was growing up, uh, I was just walking to school. It was 20 minutes walk from my home to my school. Mm-hmm. Later in higher classes, like in the last few classes of my school education, I went to different school to better one. And mm-hmm. I was just commuting there using public transportation that was taking me an hour to get there and an hour to get back. And the other difference is that the shops and all the other utilities are present in between residential areas. And in the United States, it's not allowed. In the United States, you have only residential areas and to get to a shop or to get to a cinema or to get to, an, you have to drive, drive somewhere. It's not mm-hmm. like you decide, okay, I would like to go for a coffee and you step out and walk to get your coffee. No, <laughs> that doesn't happen. It happened here. You jump in a car and drive to somewhere where they have a coffee. Well, when I lived, um, I don't live in the city anymore, but when I lived in, in the city, that did happen. But you're right. There's not really a cafe culture here as much, uh, per se. Uh, there's not walkability is thought of as a novelty and not a necessity, I, I would say. Except New York. New York is different. I liked New York more than I like Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And maybe I will move back somewhere there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Currently, I live here. And uh, since pandemic started, my company went into remote mode. So they allowed people to work from anywhere. So I'm still thinking about maybe I want <laughs> to move somewhere. But the weather is so great here. And I'm getting used to Bay Area. <laughs> Where do you live? I live in Atlanta. Uh-huh. Very mean- car dependent. Very car dependent, but also uh, the city proper. We we don't have amazing transportation, but we have transportation, uh, and there is walkability somewhat. But um, so let me back. Let me back you up a second, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we said that the Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union? Or did we say that? No, I think we haven't gotten to that point. Okay, we should get to, we should say that right right away. (laughs) Because I remember the Soviet Union. I mean, I remember it existing, but some people might not, or might not even know about it. So, yeah. So there was this big country, They were bragging that they were one-sixth of the landmass of the Earth. That was the praise which was uh, like hammered in into each school head they had. 
And to give a little brief of what Soviet Union was and how it came to be. So before that, there was a huge Russian empire, which um, had even more territory and even more people in there. And in 1914, that huge Russian empire went into First World War with other empires like Austro-Hungary Empire, Germany, France, British mm -hmm. Empire, Turkish Empire, and First World War was a mess. It was like a boxing match where people, where the partners are not just doing some feints and fancy moves. It was like, I'm hitting you in the face and you are hitting me in the face and somebody will pass out eventually. Mm. <laughs> and the Russian Empire did pass out. It was the first one to drop out of all that bloody endeavor. And it was because it was weak in a sense of government. People were not trusting the government and it was weak economically. It had a revolution before that in year 1905, after also a coincidence, unsuccessful war, which Russian Empire started against Japan. Nobody expected that a small Japan would beat them, but that happened. And it was mm -hmm. a triggering point for all the other issues that empire had. Like the Tsar, we have a lot of complaints about the Tsar. Uh, in Russian, it is Tsar, uh, basically the emperor, a speci specific term which was derived from Caesar that mm -hmm. went into different languages and in Russian and became Tsar. So we had a lot of complaints about that guy and he even cannot win a war against Japan. Okay, this is it. We start a revolution. <laughs> and in the year 1914, uh, in the year 1914, First World War started. And in the year 17, where they could not even provide food in their capital, St. Petersburg, and people were gathering into demonstration. We demand food, and this war is dragging on, and there is no end in sight. And um, the military, which was stationed in St. Petersburg, was ordered to dispel that demonstration and actually shoot people, and they refused to shoot people. And I'm proud to say that the um, unit, it was from Ukraine. That's one of the things which Ukraine was involved in the entire deal of Russian revolution. That first unit which refused to shoot, it was from Ukraine region mm -hmm. Volyn. It was even commemorated in a poem of Russian poet Mayakovsky. Um, and Russian government decided that we have to give people something and it is time for democratizing a bit. And they decided that it is time for the emperor to step down and install provisional government, which was called provisional because they had that we have to win a war. The war is still going. We still have our obligations before our mm -hmm. allies. Okay. 
so the war should still be going mm-hmm. and when they win and when we win the war then we will have proper elections and decide what to do next um that moment never happened because later in that year bolsheviks came to power and said that yeah the power now and we have the plan those guys did not have the plan well mm-hmm. that's huge big overview of what happened with russian revolution in year 17 there were there were two of them first one february and second one is october when bolsheviks came to power in soviet union they kind of played down uh, the february revolution mm-hmm. because after that uh, kind of democratic government came into power and <laughs> if mm-hmm. the Tsar was deposited uh, deposed after that then what was the october revolution about where bolsheviks um, just removed their democratic government and said that okay we are the power now mm-hmm. so in soviet union they were just celebrating october revolution not the february revolution meanwhile in ukraine the, when the emperor was removed people were also celebrating and people were also hoping for big changes and to back up again like several centuries before that or maybe longer than that i have to mention who ukrainians are and who russians are how we all ended up in that one huge empire and it all started in the year about 1000 or so in that period there was a state somewhere to the north of the black sea and up to a baltic sea it was called kiev rus and it was founded by viking raiders and traders well those vikings they did not make much of a difference between those things because in both cases they were were not shy of using violence to get what they wanted so kind of and that state um it had its capital in kiev that which is um currently the capital of ukraine and one prince of that state he decided that um kind of like entire world is now moving to some monotheistic religions with a single god instead instead of a pantheon of gods and he had a trade show he invited um Jewish priests, Roman priests, um, priests from Byzantium, from Constantinople, and mm-hmm. also uh, Muslim priests. Like, show me what you got and <laughs> try to impress me and I will decide that your God is the one true God and will pick him for my state. Um, I can say that that guy was very, very pragmatic. <laughs> Um, and he eventually picked Eastern Christianity. That mm. fact was related because he had a lot of trade with Byzantium. That's where their main income was. They were shipping goods to Byzantium, furs, resources, sometimes slaves. And after that, the culture of Kievan Rus adopted Uh, Eastern Christianity, and that's why we, till that day, have Cyrillic alphabet. It was 
based on Greek alphabet. And till that day, we have a lot of influences of Eastern Church. And three nations which were based in Kiev and Rus eventually emerged. emerged. They were Ukrainians, Russians, and Belarus. Overall, we are not that different from other Slavic people. Other Slavic people were settled in Eastern Europe, and we have ethnic connections to Polish, to Czech, to Serbs. I can sometimes understand phrases of those languages, <laughs> but it's not totally completely comprehensible. And after mm -hmm. Kievan Rus was destroyed by Mongol invasion, a few hundred years later, Ukrainians and Russians were living in different states for four more, four more hundred years. Ukrainians went into a state which was comprised of Polish people, Lithuanian people, and Moscow was ruling in a state which was to the east and to the north of past core of Kievan Rus. And there was an uprising in that Polish, Lithuanian, Ukrainian state. And the leader of that uprising, Bogdan Khmelnytsky, eventually picked uh, Moscow as his suzerain, as his liege. And it was kind of a military alliance between that rebel Ukraine and Moscow state. He could have picked somebody else. He could have picked Sweden. He could have picked Turkey. They were also huge empires and military important states. But he picked Moscow because they were Eastern Christians, just like Ukraine. That's first that Ukrainians are Eastern Christians. That was what differentiated them from Poles because Poles mm -hmm. were Western Christians. If there wasn't that difference, I guess the differentiation between Poles and Ukrainian would have been eventually blurred down. And that's why th that leader of uprising picked Moscow. <clears throat> mm. And that's how that alliance between Ukraine and Russia started in 16... 54. So it was like 300 years ago or more. That alliance started and eventually that alliance became, um, Ukraine maintained its autonomy inside of Russian Empire for about 100 or 100 and a half years after that. That autonomy was eventually made less and less up to a point where by 19th century, Ukraine was just a region in Russian Empire, just like every other region. Second. Okay, let me ask a question. And again, this is um, for some reason, um, I have been fascinated by the fall of the Soviet Union uh, ever, ever since it happened. I, I remember when it happened, I was a small child. Not a small child. I was probably, I was about 12 or 13, I would say. Um, for some reason, I was fascinated. Was, so, 
there, there weren't like states. It was, did y'all have local uh, states? Was, was Kiev the capital of the province of Ukraine or whatever? Or was it just all maintained by one like Moscow? Yeah. So in the revolution, in the revolution of 1917, there was when the Russian Empire was collapsing and all the different nationalities in that Russian Empire tried to claim their states. Like Poles, mm-hmm. they declared that Poland is again alive. Finns separated and formed Finland. Balts, like Lithuanians, Estonians, they also separated and had their own states. And Ukrainians, which had um, distinct, distinct, distinct ethnic identity from Russians. The language is a bit different. The culture is a bit different because we have lived for almost half a thousand years separately. So, of course, we evolved differently during that time. And the identity was different. They tried to form their own state too, uh, independent Ukraine. In that revolution war which happened and where people were debating what would be the legacy of that Russian empire. And in that revolution war, um, eventually one faction won, and that faction was not the nationalists, which argued for independent Ukraine, and not the Russian Bolsheviks, which were saying that it would be all entire just Soviet Russia, one and unified under big Moscow umbrella, but the faction which was fighting for Soviet Ukraine, which is interesting. Soviets won, nationalists lost, but those guys who won, they were Soviet Ukrainians. They were fighting for Soviet Ukraine, an independent inside of the Soviet Union. That's actually how Soviet Union came to be. You know, those Bolsheviks in Moscow, they could have any state they wanted. But during the fighting and during the discussion, the faction which was saying that let's have just one state, centralized state from Moscow, they were losing. They lost some important battles and Lenin and Trotsky, they argued that we have to make an alliance with nationalists, Uh, Ukrainian nationalists, Kazakh nationalists, Georgian nationalists, we will enlist those socialist-minded nationalists into our cause, you see, and we will give them their republics. They will build socialist socialism just like we want to, but they will do that in their language. They will, will do that in their language and they will have their own culture. That's how we will win. And that's why Um, After the civil war, the new form of that new state was called uh, Soviet Union, Union of Soviet Republics. Mm -hmm. That's why it became Union. And in the beginning, those republics, they had real rights. They had real power on how to organize life inside of themselves. They had especially cultural powers and Ukraine was organized and ruled from Kiev, mostly. Moscow had a say into uh, 
who will be the main guy in the in Kiev, and they had a say in how those policies would be implemented and how far Kiev authorities can go into say their cultural decisions. But it was more or less autonomy. And mm-hmm. uh, in the next ten years, when yeah. the Soviet state became more and more powerful. They did not need nationalists that much. They started to uh, go into centralized direction again. So in the 30s, they had a purge. They had um, a genocide against Ukrainian peasants. And at the same time, a campaign against Ukrainian nationalists in Ukrainian government. And like... Three million people died mm. in a hunger, which was artificial, and also in a campaign against na- nationalists in the government. And interestingly, 10 years later, there was a second world war mm. where things did not go well for Soviet government at all in the beginning. Mm. In the beginning, they were losing and Germans armies invaded up to Moscow in a couple of months. Nobody expected that. And Soviet state itself, which was very brutal and people not really loved, not really loved that state, but rather just had to submit and had to go with the flow. And that mm-hmm. Soviet, Soviet state realized that we have to change our messaging we have to play down communism and Stalin a bit, and we have to play on old um, age, <laughs> age-verified tools of nationalism. So mm-hmm. they resurrected Russian uh, military figures. They resurrected Russian military glory for Russians. Mm. Uh, for Ukrainians, they played into Ukrainian nationalism again. Like, you guys are also great. We are not going to assimilate you again. We recognize that you are a nation. Just please fight for Soviet Union. It was a very interesting period. And as a result of that period, by the end of Second World War, they even tried to give Ukraine its own um, military ministry uh, that was the idea but it did not happen and second thing they gave ukraine its foreign ministry foreign affairs ministry so that ukraine was represented in united nations so there was a representative from ukraine representative from belarus and representative from soviet union of course it was also a plot to get three votes for Soviet Union instead of just one vote. And Ukraine was always voting just like it was just in the line of Soviet Union vote. But there was a foreign ministry. And that foreign ministry kind of had affairs with other states. So mm-hmm. Ukraine was formally an independent republic inside of Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union came crashing down in 1991, um, those leaders of that kind of independent republic 
of course that one that independence became less and less real and more and more just a formality inside of a soviet union but it was there formally it was there there were lots of things in the soviet union which were formally there say like democracy <laughs> in soviet union they had elections they were electing those representatives of course those elections had only one candidate in them imagine mm-hmm. just a list of a people to elect and it's just a one guy and you either got, vote for him or you can abstain but kind of elections were there and even those elections and those elected officials they did not decide much um the top ruling class of the soviet union was called politburo and it was party officials those people who were elected they went into soviet parliament which was not doing much real decisions were made by politburo but i'm getting sidetracked so yeah in year 1991 when soviet union was collapsing and there were discussions what is going to happen next local republics understood that it is their time to grab power mm-hmm. and they had the means to do so let they me, just yeah sorry i'm sorry let me back you up just just a smidge just a little bit what did the soviet parliament or duma or whatever you call it what did they decide was was it more day-to-day situations or was it ceremonial or or what was it it was mostly ceremonial and it was mostly approval of the decisions which were made in inner cycle of the party there were okay. books about the decision of um 25 summit of the party and nobody read those decisions and nobody cared but i did not read them either and i was too young to do so and so that's not my area of interest yeah so sorry not much about what actually did they decide okay Other question? yeah um tell me um have we gotten up to your we've gotten up to where you were alive in the history of ukraine mm-hmm. can you tell me um sort of the daily life of living under communism i was young and i was remembering things where communism was already kind of crumbling down so in the year 84 mm-hmm. uh, communist leader gorbachev declared that it is time for a change and we have to change things up and to speak more freely about the issues the soviet union had it was called perestroika which means mm-hmm. rebuilding i remember food shortages there were huge lines other than that the school was still in there um, and we were still learning using soviet b- books and 
I went to study in Russian-speaking school because in my district of Kiev there were not many Ukrainian-speaking schools and also parents were moving kids into Russian schools because they thought that would be better for their career that eventually mm. they would be speaking Russian anyway in their job like that big Soviet company where my parents were working for they had in their entire documentation in Russian and Russian was their business language so schools were teaching kids in Russian mm-hmm. And also big okay. big event of those decade was Chernobyl disaster. And yes. Chernobyl is just that? like oh huh? sorry? Um do you remember that, the Chernobyl disaster? Yeah, of course. I was six year. And even even though at that moment we we were in Kiev back that day me and my sister, and we had an announcement that we had to close the windows. Mm -hmm. And we left to a countryside to our grandparents. We stayed there for like a week or so. No. (laughs) And at the same time, my parents were moving back from a vacation. They did not know that anything really important happened. They had to move back and the entire city was moving out. They Mm -hmm. did not hear news. News was saying that everything is fine. Everything is fine. There was some minor accident. And so the accident happened on April 26th. And on May 1st, there were to be a public demonstration. May 1st, Mm -hmm. the Labor Day, it was a big day in the Soviet Union. And they did not cancel the demonstration. So people paraded through streets of Kiev. And there was a rumor that the party leaders were standing, uh, standing at a podium and checking their um, higher uh, radiation indicators if it is still safe to stand there. That was the joke. So <laughs> what you have to understand about the Soviet Union is that the media was very tightly controlled and it's you should not be trusting anything that we are saying there. In newspapers or in the TV, what Soviet Union says, you have to check. If they say that we were attacked, uh, that's probably not true. If they say that it is safe, that's also not necessarily true. Mm. Is that if they say we were not there, that's also not true. Mm. And uh, about Chernobyl disaster, if the wind was not blowing up to north and it was not registered in Sweden stations, you probably wouldn't have heard about it. Uh, it would be just uh, swept under a rug And there were other incidents in the Soviet Union which were swept under Iraq. Not of that scale as Chernobyl, but also bad. So the ecology, well, I'm learning about United States and there were some shady stuff done by big corporations and they went out. 
In Soviet Union, they never went out because there were no free press. There were nobody to complain to. And <laughs> you eventually would be accused of um, talking, back, talking bad about the party. And um, are you not sure how about how great our state was? You are saying that we are leaking toxic chemicals into a river. Are you what? Anti-revolutionary? <laughs> Siberia, you are gone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember... I remember I, I knew an older gentleman who... Just to example of uh, American... Um, environmentalist environmental problems or whatever um i remember i knew an older gentleman whose father i forget if he was a, de a police detective or if he was a fireman right mm -hmm. but he lived in cleveland growing up which is cleveland ohio um and he said something about like when the when lake Erie used to catch fire like it was either the mafia burning a body in the lake or the the chemicals in the lake would just catch fire. And I forget the whole story, but it was like, if the fire does one thing, we call the police. If it does the other thing, we call the fire department. <laughs> so, I mean, the environment in this country used to be pretty bad too. Um, back in the, you know, certain part of the 20th century but um let me ask you a question and this is a little bit off topic yeah i knew a knew of uh, a man who was russian and when he was living in russia he was an engineer he was a petrochemical engineer mm -hmm. in russia and his job, I think in Siberia, as I recall, and his job was he 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 had to make the oil. Uh, it was so cold, he had to make the oil liquid. Like, make sure it was still liquid when it came out of the ground. And he said he lived in a secret city, like it was a secret situation. Um, and I can't remember if it was secret from the West or if it was just secret from everybody. But did you hear about things like that, like secret cities or something? Yeah, they were called post boxes. Um, because to address somebody living there, you would just say, write on an envelope, post box number such and such, and the name of the person. And it was pretty common. Like... Um, hmm. You know, here we have company towns in which are centered around one company doing stuff, like a factory mm -hmm. and uh, people working in that factory and school for children of those people and some medical facility, um, industry-centered town. And in Soviet Union, there were towns which were centered about military industry, say about rockets or about some scientific research. And yeah, and they were not that bad. Actually, it was a good assignment. 
not mm-hmm. everybody got those assignments and yeah there was a city close to moscow which was called zelenograd green city and the soviet scientists were living there and it is really really nice area comparable to um good suburbs here in united states and of course not each post box city was like that some post box city were just um factories which were manufacturing secret stuff and mm. i guess they were not that nice but those things totally happened and it's not like they were doing some super duper secret projects um earth shattering weapons uh, soviet union was doing a lot of weapons and not all of them were completely fantastic but they were all secretive soviet union was very big on secrecy you know uh, there is a joke about soviet union and they wanted soviet uh, russian word con- called sputnik maybe you have heard about it it means satellite yeah so sputnik is not its um special word it's just a usual word which means um passerby or satellite and they dreamt that that word sputnik would enter all other languages and that did not happen sputnik became just a name for the satellite they launched <laughs> and mm. it is not used but some other words which entered other languages were like pogrom mm. which is a russian word which is known in other languages and other word which is russian which entered other languages and has its own wikipedia article is maskirovka which means grand scale um, disinformation usually mm. in military means and mm. those postbox cities because they could because they could conceal that information and why wouldn't they it's mm. safer that way it makes sense from military thinking so they did it mm. Mm. let me okay let me ask you a question um somebody told me somebody told me a story they lived in the soviet union too the story they told me was um everybody had the same china like it was nice china but it was all the same because that's what the soviet union could get and so like you would go to the store and like where you know like in america you might have informal dishes in the soviet union everybody had the same china do you have that memory um i guess that's one of the aspects of living in soviet union which is foreign to western countries is there were well, uh, complete often not enough goods for everybody and especially if those goods were nice people were um having huge lines to buy stuff <laughs> mm. 
here, well, now I have a complete analogy for you. Um, okay. If you if you thought about buying a graphic card those days, you cannot find one in store. Find a what? Um, graphic card for oh, your graphic computer. card, right? Yes, graphic for the computers. Yes. Yeah, manufacturer yes. price is eight hundred, and you cannot find your card in the store at that price. You have mm -hmm. to go to black market, <laughs> or you have to go to some scalpers, and that is exactly what happened in Soviet Union. Their money were not as much useful as your connection to get stuff before it gets snatched by somebody else. So there was a story about my father who some how he got a hint when he was in a store that mm -hmm. the next day there would be a serving machine being sold. And he took a day off from his job the next day, came in the very, very early morning and stood there in the department of serving machines and he snatched one. There was mm -hmm. almost a fight of people. We had German serving machines because Soviet ones were much worse than those manufactured in German Democratic Republic. And he got one and he was carrying it over the street. He got a couple of offers to resell it instantly to somebody who also did not even think that he would need a sewing machine, but he recognized that it was useful thing and he could not buy it in store. So people were offering money, people were asking him, where have you got it? And having connections in the Soviet Union is was very, very useful. You could not get anywhere. You had to call somebody and they had special stores. If you go to Cuba those days, mm. If you go to Cuba, they have different rates at which they will exchange your dollars into local currency. That thing was a thing in United in Soviet Union too. If mm. you were to visit the Soviet Union, you could sell your dollars at an official rate, or you can try to meet some shady guy and get 10 times more rubles for your dollar. And also you could sell your um, Western um clothes and western stuff to get money and those things would be resold to soviet citizens but i even that reselling stuff in the soviet union was a crime there was um, an article in the penal code mm -hmm. for reselling stuff at the black market <laughs> so mm -hmm. at the same time there were stores which were selling stuff at for mm. foreign currency, for dollars. But mm. to get into that store, you had to be a special kind of person. You had to have a permission go there and you had to have those officially allowed dollars. You cannot just come in from the street and say, I have a hundred dollars, I want to buy that stereo. No, they would ask mm. you, where have you got those hundred dollars? Can you please tell us more? <laughs> Off to Siberia you go. Um, yeah, it was mm. um, a layered society, like people without mm. connections and people not in the inner circle of a party. They lived different lives from those who were in the inner circle of a party. 
And mm. those in the inner circle, they had their own medical facilities. They had their own resorts. And sometimes they had even their own room, waiting rooms in uh, train stations. It was kind of, you get into a different layer of life. Uh, in Western mm -hmm. world, you get there if you have a billion dollars. But in the Soviet Union, you get there if you are in the inner party. It was called nomenclatura. The largest and uh, the best book about it is called Nomenclatura Ruling Class of the Soviet Union, if somebody is interested in reading about that stuff. I might just read up about that stuff. That's I've always been fascinated by the Soviet Union. Um, let me ask... Okay, so we're going to say the Cold War... Well, okay, the Soviet Union ended in 1992... 91. Okay, yeah. 91. Okay. You know, what's a year between friends? Um, <laughs> so I'm guessing you at that point you didn't have people from 1917. Like, you, you, you wouldn't have had, like, revolutionaries from 1917. I'm guessing. Yeah, of course not. That were in the party inner circle. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. So, how would somebody? Do you know how somebody would get into the party inner circle, or you would have to start as a party official, small one, like, well, of course, mm. you would have to start as a youth communist organization. Mm. It was called Komsomol, and you would be active in that organization. You would be yeah. organizing meetings, you would be speaking at the events, and you would try to make friends with the right people, um, with your local party leader, with his um, deputies, and you would try as if you were trying to be promoted in any political organization, do stuff for important people, uh, do stuff well, be reliable. Most of all, be reliable. Know what you can say and what you cannot say so that those people who are going up, eventually some places would be freed up in the upper rungs of a ladder, you see. Mm -hmm. And when your high-ranking friends would be moving up in that world and they see you, as a friend, competent enough and reliable enough, they will pull you up too. And so as a part of that, um, almost like a clan going up, you would also be going up. But mm. if your, say, party sponsor falls out of favor, that would be bad for your career, of course. You would probably not be promoted you would probably stay at the place where you are. It's not like in the end of the Soviet Union that party infighting was not as bad as in Stalin's time, where people who lost the competition would be often accused of being the enemy of the people and shot. But the competition was still there. Mm. And 
you have to be politically savvy. You have to understand who is your friend and who is not your friend, and who's is trying to angle for something. Like what is their motivation? And a guy comes to you and says, "I have Ivanov, who would be a, in a good position to rule factory in Izhevsk." And you start to think, okay, this guy is promoting Ivanov to be a factory manager in Izhevsk, but my friend B also has plans for that position, and so if I approve that guy, I will gain a favor from the one who proposed him, but maybe I could gain a better favor from somebody else if I approve somebody else. Thinking like that. Mm. Uh, mm. You have to be good at those things, and <laughs> I think that's a special kind of skill. If you have that skill, you can be good at politics anywhere. <laughs> you have how to judge people, how to please people, how to make friends. Mm. Drinking was a big part of that culture, <laughs> somehow. Well, maybe understandable. Mm. There were often. I would imagine there were a lot of. Uh conversations happening in smoky rooms yeah kind of like I, that i would imagine yes i wasn't into those things and my family wasn't eisen they were just Whoa. engineers yeah yeah um okay so what's the have have you worked in the Ukraine? Have you had a job in the Ukraine? Yeah, of course. I li lived yeah. till 38 years there. Okay. And since my graduation from the university, I worked as a software engineer, mostly for Western companies. Mm -hmm. um, working as a software engineer gave better money than working directly for Ukrainian companies. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a huge industry. It's a huge industry right now, mm -hmm. and they also had a um, special tax scheme for working. You can register as a private entrepreneur and say like ten percent. You wouldn't have any mm -hmm. benefits because you are private and working for yourself, but you would pay just ten percent of your income. And currently, lots of companies are employing those private entrepreneurs on a, like contractor contracts. That's how it is right now there. And now that IT industry is bringing a lot of money, the government is thinking about changing that taxing scheme to get more money from those kind of entrepreneurs. But that is up to the discussion right now. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Hmm. Let me, um, okay. So the main reason, I, what's the difference? What are some of the differences in having a job in the Ukraine versus having a job in the Bay area? Medical insurance. We don't have such thing in Ukraine. Um, and it is much simpler to get medical services in Ukraine. You don't need to have an insurance. And there is no much, not a much of a difference between money you would pay through the insurance and money you would pay through out of pocket. Um, 
in Ukraine, say you have a, you have to have a surgery that would cost five thousand dollars, and that would be either your five thousand dollars or that would be five thousand dollars if you were insured by private insurance company. What amazes me in Ukraine, in United States, is that in United States that is different. Mm-hmm. Um, so my wife went once for a consultation, and they said um, that would be. $200 if it is on the insurance, but if you pay out of pocket, it's just $100. How can the service can be different? The cost of the service would be different depending on papers. That's strange. And also, it's strange that um, most people are insured through their employer. Um, so you either employed and have an insurance through an employer, but you cannot get the same insurance yourself. It would be too very expensive. This system is very complicated. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's one difference. Mm-hmm. And also when looking for a job in Ukraine and in the United States, especially in IT industry, it was different in things that in Ukraine, the interviews were much simpler and were much more focused at what you can do right now. like. Do you know that language? Uh, do you know that database? Have you worked with those things? Yeah, I did. I can prove it. Fine, you're hired. We have a project coming up next week. You will be a great addition to the team. In the United States, the software interviews, uh, they are not focused at you proving that you can do the job because you can tell people, I have worked there, there, I have did, did those things. And of course, you would not be lying in those interviews and those guys who are trying to lie their way and claim to be something which they kind of did, but they did not. It's easily understandable and it's easy to see if somebody is overhyping themselves. So that's not the issue. The issue is that in the United States, they do quizzes and they do abstract abstract um, puzzles in the interview. So you have to spend like a couple of months freshing up on university topics, which probably will not come up again until the next interview. That's strange. Mm. In a computer software engineering culture, it's called lead coding because there is a website with quizzes and everybody has to freshen up even if you had 10 years of experience in the industry and were doing great and inventing things and people are using your things you still have to spend a couple of months to freshen up your quiz skills that's strange (laughs) other than that the work is mostly about the same in ukraine and in the united states Except in the United States, we work on uh, products. We work directly with the company. And in Ukraine, it is often about outsourcing. It's often about some stuff which they could move out to other countries. You were feeling kind of like um, a separate siloed entity, not on, in the main flow of the themes 
and it is less interesting than here in the United States. Here in the United States, I was working on directly on things and talking to business owners of the projects and um, feeling the beat of the business. And yeah, that was exciting. That's interesting. And that's why a lot of people move out, not just for better um, legal security, and not just for more money, but also to participate in more interesting projects. Hmm. When I say about legal security is that um, what I like about United States and what was one of the main reasons why I moved is that the law mostly works here, while in Ukraine and Russia, it often does not. There were, and it's content, there were a lot of issues where people could run somebody over and the judge would just throw the case out. If that guy is high enough and connected enough. You remember I said that in the Soviet Union, there were two layers of society, higher layer and inner layer. And when the mm -hmm. Soviet Union felt um, that system mm -hmm. mostly stayed in place, you know, it was unexpected, but we did not have a revolution like a French revolution with um, head chopping and completely over, over, overturning society. No, mm -hmm. the Soviet uh, Ukraine, Soviet U Re Ukrainian Republic declared its independence, but the society stayed mostly in place. And those guys who were ruling the country, they were still ruling the country. Um, in, mm. Up to a point, like, I, it came as a surprise for the central government, but Ukrainian KGB, which was in charge of catching the opposition and nationalists and dissidents, when Ukrainian ruling party declared independence, that Ukrainian KGB rebranded itself into Ukrainian security service, mostly overnight, and served new masters. Mm. Mm. And when I say that two layers of society stayed, we still experience that effect. We still have that effect where judges are not judging cases by their merit, but they are looking at who is involved. And if somebody is a deputy or a minister, then your chances of getting a just resolution in that case are slim. And that is what drives people mad. That is what was about um, a recent revolution in year 14. People were just asking to reorganize society to be more just. In the year 14, there was Maidan revolution, and it was a movement at one hand to move the country closer to Europe, and at other hand, to reorganize society to be more just, to hmm. limit the power of our president who was overstepping and who was enacting laws which would limit the right of the people to gather together and to file complaints and basically the limit to limit the democracy to move country more in the way of controlled democracy of 
Russia or China. Basically, what happened to Belarus those days where the president mm-hmm. lost the election, lost very badly and still stayed in place and punished everybody who dissented. That's mm-hmm. what people were up against in the year 14. Um, are, you you talking about, something? are you talking about in the year uh, 2014? Yeah, 2014. Recent one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um. So, okay. Tell us in your own words. Like, tell us. <laughs> right now, it's just a conversation between you and me. Um, so tell tell me if you wouldn't mind, Tim. Uh, in your own words, what is going on in the Ukraine right now? So after year fourteen, there was a war between. Russia tried to uh, Russia snatched Crimea and Russia tried to carve half of Ukraine into new state. They were calling it Novorossiya state, and Russian agitators and saboteurs they tried to install new republic in Odessa, Dnipropetrovsk, Donbas, Lugansk, Kharkiv, all the major eastern cities. Mm. In two of the, they succeeded only in two of those eastern cities, mm-hmm. which I guess came as a surprise to Putin because he was thinking that almost entire eastern Ukraine thinks about joining Russia because they were speaking Russian most of the time, and they do, but that they are speaking Russian because in business environment they speak Russian. They still had Ukrainian grandmothers mostly. And even that is not an indicator of willing to join Russia, even if you were from Russian-speaking family. Because, you know, not entire Ireland who is, speaks, is speaking English is willing to join United Kingdom. Language does not always correlate with your national feeling. So, mm-hmm. and there was a war where Ukrainian government was trying to fight those Russian-supported republics in Donbass and Lugansk. And they were supported covertly. Russia was still saying that we are not involved at all. And they were losing the war. In that entire affair started in spring of year 14. And by August of that year 14, their republics were surrounded by Ukrainian forces and they were about to lose in a couple of weeks. Russia first started sending more and more people and more and more equipment, and they even shelled using rocket artillery Ukrainian units which were stationed at the border, which were trying to cut the flow of the supplies to those separatist republics. Instead of fighting in the cities, they were trying to surround them and to cut them from the Russian border. That was the plan. And Russia used rocket artillery to um, kill those Ukrainian units which were stationed at the border. And even that did not completely turn the tide of the battle. So in August, they invaded. They used regular Russian units, not just disguised volunteers, but just Regular Russian units, 
with tanks and artillery and all that stuff. And in the battle near Ilovaisk, they encircled Ukrainian units and killed them. And that was a very bad moment for Ukraine. After which, Ukrainian government had to sign so-called Minsk agreements. <clears throat> it's basically a capitulation. It means that those areas which were occupied by Russia stayed occupied, but Ukraine will recognize them. Ukraine will recognize those representatives, in quotes, of those republics as deputies, and those uh, separate armed separatists as local militia, and that those areas would still be controlled by Russia, but will be financially supported by Ukraine, and those people who are appointed by Russia will go into Ukrainian parliaments as representative, representatives of Donbass. Of course, if it wasn't in a situation of military defeat, the Ukrainian government would not have signed that. And so the fighting continued, even though that document was signed. And in a half a year, the situation repeated, unfortunately. And the document was signed again with a bit harsher terms. This time, it was in the beginning of year 15. And then, interestingly, Ukrainian army improved enough to make Ukrainian government do not fear that much that Russians will go on. And they just stalled executing that agreement, that very bad capitulation agreement. They said that, okay, we still surrender, we still accept your terms, but there were a few issues like you were uh, promising to stop shelling our territory and you were promising to give international observers a chance to monitor the border between Donbass and Russia, and you did not do that. And that's where the situation stayed for five years. Like, there is no peace, there is, there is no war, and there is no capitulation of Ukraine. And it could have stayed like that for more years, if not a couple of things, like Ukraine acquired some new weapons, Bayraktar drones, and Ukraine signed a security agreement with, well, not security agreement, but military supply agreement with United Kingdom. That summer, they bought some new ships for Black Sea from United Kingdom, with those ships to be delivered soon. And so I think that Putin got tired of that situation where he is not getting what they wanted. He thinks that, guys, we have beaten you in year 14 and year 15, and you promised to surrender, but you are not surrendering. Why? <laughs> and he thinks that, so I think that uh, his talks about NATO and his mm. talks about uh, He's saying that roll back NATO to year 1997, like expel Romania, Poland, Bulgaria from NATO. Well, not really expel, but do not put any NATO military in those countries, which basically means expel in all but name. 
if NATO, NATO is not allowed to put their military in Romania, how can NATO defend Romania? It means expel. But I think that it's just a strawman argument because what mm. they are really angling for is to make Ukraine surrender and to make Ukraine execute those Minsk agreements. Mm. And that's a complex thing where mm. uh, United States is helping Ukraine here. United States is providing military assistance and weapons. And the idea here is that Putin might invade to install a new government which would do what he wants Ukraine to do. Uh, but that would be costly for him. And the more weapons Ukraine has, the higher would be the cost for Putin mm -hmm. to invade. That's why United States and United Kingdom provide a lot of weapons. And weapons which are simple enough to be used immediately, like mm. Javelin anti-tank missiles and Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, it's quite easy to train people to use those things. And mm. they want to change the situation right now. And at the same time, Russia is putting more and more troops at the border, saying that make Ukraine surrender. And in two days, just next Wednesday, there would be next round of negotiation between um, France, Germany, Ukraine, and Russia, where mm. France and Germany and Ukraine and Russia would discuss the next steps in implementing that Minsk agreement. In, interestingly, in previous years, up to this um, October, they were France and Germany were supporting Ukraine. They were saying that Russia has to implement their part of the agreement first. Russia has to stop shelling. Russia has to remove their troops, and Russia has to um, let international observers in. And Russia themselves thinks that those are just minor details. And Ukraine, as a defeated party, has to implement their part first. And so far, uh, France and Germany were supporting Ukraine in that negotiations, which was driving Russia mad. Up to a point where in October they just published entire diplomatic correspondence between uh, France, Germany, and Russia in their foreign ministry website. That's not a thing people usually do in <laughs> diplomatic negotiation, publishing yeah, negotiations verbatim as they are, preliminary, but that's what they did. Mm -hmm. And what is happening right now is that United States, United Kingdom are supporting Ukraine in their attempt to either stall Minsk agreement or at least not execute them on Russian terms. Russian terms being that that area would still be controlled by Russia, but Ukraine will just accept them as um, legal representatives of the area. That would be very, very bad and it would influence Ukrainian politics and put huge costs on the economy. And Russia insists that you either do that or we invade. And the huge question is, are Russians bluffing? 
or are they really willing to invade if they will not get what they want? That's a question. Of course, we have those reports that more and more troops are pulling in. And up to the, at this point, Russia definitely has a military capacity to invade. Mm -hmm. And it looks very, very real. And mm -hmm. of course it is looking real. You know, if you try to bluff, you will try to make your bluff as real as possible. Uh, Putin and his top friends, they will issue orders to generals and to officers to act, just basically execute Plan 17. And they would open secret packages with number 17 in them and move to the positions specified in that secret package number 17, for example. And they will not know, would after that come a next order which says execute package 19 or will they be ordered to just pull back? The officers and the generals do not know. And the only guy who really knows, and maybe even he does not know, maybe he is still deciding whether it is worth it or not, is Putin mm. himself. Mm. So that's what is happening. Russia is trying to uh, force Ukraine to surrender and to execute the terms of the surrender. And mm. is either bluffing or either really angling for invade, invasion if they do not get what they want. I don't know. Nobody knows. Mm. Mm. Um, so, I... wow. Um, thank you. If you want, <laughs> I know you, you've been with me for nearly an hour and a half. Um, if you want, would you mind telling me what you think of America in this day and age? It's a beautiful country here and with lots of history and lots of human dreams to make it huge and to make it better. There's also some dark pages in its history, like racism and segregation. And it's a country which is debating itself right now. Mm. And what I like about what I like about United States is that people are more open and more trusting each other, or maybe they were. And that is changing, but still people are more trusting to each other than they are in Ukraine or Russia. Yeah. Mm. You can invite strangers into your home and Airbnb would work. They would <laughs> do you know what Airbnb? What I do. Airbnb? I didn't mean I wasn't laughing at you. I, I agree with you. I actually agree with you. That Airbnb is a little strange, but okay, we're we're doing Airbnb. <laughs> you know. it, when I first came to United States in year, yeah. I think, 16 or so, no, a bit earlier than that, and I was using Airbnb, which was not available in our country. And mm -hmm. I thought that they are trusting me. They are trusting me not to take their laptop and to go to airport and they would never see me again. And yeah, 
<laughs> that is the thing which impressed me. And also yeah. another thing which impressed me was the level of organization in here. Like people were voting for their um, city council. Who would run the city council in our area? Um, the guy we lived, we stayed at, the, he had that letters where people would give him political programs, vote for that guy, vote for this guy. And even now people are putting up posters at their lawns, like vote Republican, vote Democrats, and vote. They're involved there. Uh, mm. And not just that, uh, we have that thing where people vote for national elections too, but also local elections. The level of involvement in local election and local government in United in United States is much higher than what I have seen in Ukraine. People are much more involved in their local government government governance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I agree. With, I mean. I don't know about the Ukraine uh, from personal experience, but um, it's much higher than I remember it being uh, in America. It, it's much, much higher than I, I remember it being. And, you know, in general, I think that's a good thing. In general, um, I'm a, of the opinion that that people ought to vote for the, the government they want. You know, that's that's what I think. You mean local yeah. government or national In government? general, I think democracy is a good idea um, as a whole. You know, a, as a theory, I think it's a good idea. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the more we have yeah. it, the you can think about the state as a machine. I mm. once made that analogy explaining stuff mm. in my university. So if you think about the government as a machine where you... Kick it once and it does something like a vending machine. You put money in, you get decisions out. And if we do that just once in four years, the feedback loop, loop is very, very slow. And if yeah. people are involved in local government, they can um, make those smaller changes and adjust the direction much faster. And it is a great thing really improves the lives of the people and um, it also I think it makes people happier to know that they are empowered to change something. Um, mm -hmm. When you are powerless to change something and you feel that basically nothing will change out of your as a result of your actions, maybe that was one of the reasons why, why people drank so much alcohol in the Soviet Union. Because they were unhappy and they felt that nothing ever matters, um, and yeah. that's not a good thing. Yeah, it's not a good thing at all. Um, I can tell yeah. you another thing which impressed me in the United oh, States. Oh, please, no, the floor is yours. <laughs> Keep talking. <laughs> One of the things which really impressed me was the. BART strike of San Francisco when I visited mm. it. Mm -hmm. uh, BART is a San Francisco um, subway system and mm. transport agency. And they had a strike when I was in San Francisco and it was inconvenient for me 
but it impressed me that again a level of organization of people in here um people mm-hmm. in ukraine are also underpaid and they complain a lot but i have never heard about strikes of that scale they had some um trade unions but this those trade unions are very weak and it is also a legacy of the soviet union because in soviet union of course there were no trade unions there were no they celebrated labor day but real um fight for worker right ended up in siberia <laughs> you could not fight for better pay or better conditions in your factory that would be anti-soviet so there were no trade unions and there were no grassroots organizations in there and in san francisco they managed to organize a strike which means they had some funds which means they had convinced thousands of thousands of employees to not go to work that day and to risk their employment and convince the politicians to work for their cause and it took a lot of organizing and that was impressive it was inconvenient for the customers me included but i was impressed by how connected the society is um, mm-hmm. speaking about it there is a theory there is a book called making democracy work if you are interested in democracy i highly recommend you uh, this book to you it's about italy and they used italy just like, like a lab on why in some places democracy works and in other places democracy does not work like hmm. in some places you give 10 million dollars to local authorities and they build roads and in other places you give the same 10 million dollars and the roads are shit and somehow there are palaces in the forest for the authorities why the same italy the same 10 million completely different results and in some places people are able to organize schools and in some places they spend entire year uh, arguing about inconsequential things and not get into any decisions at the end of the year why and that book investigated italy and different regions of it trying to find the difference like mm. maybe italians are about different a, a bit different but mostly no the same language mostly the same people maybe it's some geographic reasons and they came to deduce the reason for that is that in some places people are more connected to each other in different organizations people participate in credit unions in sport unions in like cooperatives and when people are connected to each other and know their neighbors and have some even imagine some non political organization mm-hmm. like a mm-hmm. health organization but it has 3000 people and those 3000 people meet together often and they have some shared interest and so in the end of the day that non political organization 
can come to a deputy and say, okay, you give us better health facilities and our 30,000 people will know whom to vote for. You see, that's how it works. And if those 3,000 people are not connected, if they do not have their organization, they would basically fall for anything, fall for some stupid Facebook advertisement and vote for the guy who spent more money on stupid Facebook advertisement. But if they had an organization, they could have had a clinic instead of watching Facebook advertisements. And those societies which have those connectivity between their people, those societies tend to have better democracy. And those societies which do not have that connectivity, they are easily fooled by lying politicians and they basically repeat the cycle of misery year and year after that. And in Italy, and in Italy it happened so that in the southern Italy, there was a kingdom which was quite efficient, which was successful in its conquests and its kin. Um, it rooted out all grassroots organizations and replaced them with his appointed bureaucrats. So people had no skill in organizing themselves. It was not allowed. Northern Italy, meanwhile, mm. was more organized in different trade unions, like not trade unions, guilds, like in different guilds, in different cooperatives. And they kept that culture through hundreds of years. And mm -hmm. the difference between Southern and Northern Italy, it is still present with us. Different researchers, they tried to repeat those ideas in different places. Like in Ukraine, the Western part of Ukraine, um, after the revolution, it belonged to Polish state. Eastern part of Ukraine, uh, it after the revolution belonged to Soviet Union and the western part of Ukraine was annexed by Soviet Union only in the Second World War. So they had about 20 years of life in democratic uh, state, not the Soviet Union, but the Polish state. And while in eastern Ukraine, those nationalistic-minded people in government were killed and the peasants, three millions of peasants were killed during the genocide. Western Ukraine did not, did not have those things. More Ukrainians survived and more talented Ukrainians survived in Western Ukraine. And also they had the culture of organizing and the culture of parties and political discussion and even though after Second World War, they lived in the Soviet state, just like the Eastern Ukraine for 50 more years, the difference is still in there. The Western Ukraine is, they organized better than the Eastern Ukraine. And they, through the years and through generations, they have the belief that their organization can help, that they can do stuff together if they organize. You see, that is, that is inspiring. And of course, United States have even more of that.
United States never had genocides and never had <laughs> those events like Soviet Union did to did to its people. Soviet Union is much more was much more oppressive than the states which have became after that, and Soviet Union was way worse than United States ever was to anybody. You know, what amazes me is that some liberal-minded Americans, like Social Democratic Party of United States, they have a lot of right ideas, a lot of right ideas, but when they talk about international policy, they take what the Soviet Union was saying just as it is, as true fact without any contemplation that Soviet Union maybe was lying and maybe Russia is lying. No, they just repeat their words word for word. They think that they see some flaws in American society, but they refuse to see any flaws in Russian society. <laughs> like, you know, Russia often accuses Ukrainian government of being Nazis. Maybe if you mm. open mm. any pro-Russian source of it, it was like Ukrainian are Nazis and their government is illegitimate mm. and their government is oppressive and it is just a coup supported by United States. Yeah. It's language just word for word out of the Soviet times. And it is bullshit, completely. Mm. Ukrainian government had a free election after year 14, and a new government and a new president was elected, and new parliament was elected. You know, Russia did not have a change of president for 20 years. And they accuse Ukraine of being undemocratic. Ukraine is much more democratic than Russia. Uh, they accuse Ukrainians of being Nazis, and current Ukrainian president is mm. a Russian-speaking Jew. How can that happen in a Nazi state? <laughs> well, mm. if there were uh, yeah, polls... I... Sorry? No, I, I was agreeing with you, yeah. There are polls about opinion of people, like uh, there is a site called Worldometer, and there are other polls. Mm. There is a poll about... Uh, what would you feel if your neighbor was a Jew? And a certain percent of the population does not feel fine about that. They would prefer somebody else. And Ukraine is much less Judophobic than any other neighboring country, including Russia. We have large Jewish, Jewish minority in Ukraine, and they are doing fine. And other countries like Poland or Romania or Hungary or Russia itself, they feel worse about Jews than Ukraine does. Mm. And other thing is that, um, say, gay people and mm. what the society thinks about gay people. In Ukraine, there is no law against gay people and there are Pride parades, mm. sometime, someday in the summer, I don't remember what. Um, those pride, pride parades, they happen with quite significant police, police presence. Police presence try to make 
keep things civil if somebody feels offended by their pride parades so that no incident would happen. But they have those pride parades. Of course, if you go to some backward village and try to look so much different, you might get into trouble. That's true. But in Russia, a general public opinion about gays is much worse than it is in Ukraine. And they even have a law which makes promoting homosexuality a criminal offense. Um, so basically, if you publicly say that being gay is okay, you are committing a crime and off to Siberia you go. And which country is more Nazi-like here again? So you should never read Russian news and yeah, trust I mean, them. While I have you on the line... Um... So RT is Russia Today, um, and when I found that out, I quit looking at RT. Like I, you know, but yeah, I mean, Russia does actually uh, finance certain news outlets in this country. One of them being RT. Uh, I forget some of the others, but yeah. Um, and in Europe, I found out. They in some countries in Europe, they're that's actually illegal. There's laws about that, and in this country, I don't, I don't know if there's a law about that or not. Hmm. So, yeah, they are big at um, international advertisement, and they try to steer the discussion into the direction they want. Like currently. In this current crisis, they try to make people talk about Russia feeling insecure and that Russia, that say, we want security guarantees. We are feeling insecure that NATO is so close to our borders, which is basically a play. And it is completely not true, not, they, not what they mean itself, uh, themselves. And we should not fall for that. Even if we try to argue in that line of thinking, we are still playing the game they try us to play. Mm. And that's why they invest so much in um, public media, in YouTube channels, in TV channels, in Russia Today, mm. in shaping internet opinion using Facebook and using paid trolls. Mm. Mm. it's completely no secret right now that they have an agency with people typing comments each day it's called internet research agency there is a wikipedia about that in moscow mm. and in other places uh, you know there was a question about how can a totalitarian state influence public opinion in the age of information in the soviet union it was pretty simple they were not allowed to get international news in public in Soviet Union. You could not just go and buy Western newspapers. You could not listen to BBC. There were special stations which were shutting BBC signal down. Really. It was coming through a huge noise and it was difficult to get a signal if you were trying. And of course, you were breaking the law, even that. And but in the mm. 21st century, um, 
you cannot close the signal. You cannot shut the enemy newspaper down. People can go to the internet and read it. So the solution was to not shut down the signal of the enemy, but to shout so much that uh, they would be not heard and to throw in so much information and so much mm. misinformation that the people would be confused and decide that it is not possible to even find out what happened. And, you know, yeah. one of the um, goals here is to sway public opinion so that they would change their opinion on something to think that Russia is a friend, that's mm -hmm. huge and 100% goal. But even if people just stop caring, that is also a success for them. If people say, ah, it's so difficult to understand what is happening there. There are so many different opinions on that. I just don't care. And mm -hmm. maybe I don't want uh, my government to spend money in helping the just cause. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know what the just cause is there. Maybe it's that, maybe it's that, maybe it's something different. I don't know. I don't want to spend money on that. Eventually, either, of course. Either, yeah, sorry. Either that or people just don't care. I mean, there's a lot of people in this country that don't really care about international politics at all. I think. Well, that, of course, is true yeah. for all the countries. And yeah. when Ukrainians complain that um, the world does not care about us and the world, especially Western Europe, just tries to avoid the war, it is especially true of Germany and France. I think they are trying to have two solutions. One is that either we make Putin back down or either we make so if Putin does not back down and Putin if does if Putin does invade, just so that that war would happen fast and it would not mm. be a huge prolonged war on our borders. So yeah, they care about themselves. And Ukrainians, of course, are offended by the situation. But 10 years ago, when Russia invaded Georgia, most of Ukrainian population did not care either. That's true. Our president, uh, president at that time, tried to help Georgia, but didn't, he did not get much public support on that. He was trying to do the right thing, and public was not impressed. Why do we need to involve ourselves in that conflict? I think that mindset is true for most nations. They think about themselves first and foremost, and even if they have some sympathy, you know, it's difficult when you talk about tens of millions of people to have some sympathy, to mm -hmm. think about the future. When Second World War ended and Polish people were fighting at the side of allies and they mm -hmm. helped a lot the cause, one of the reasons Second World War was won in so short time is that the British had German ciphers they could read german secret communications and it was 
work of British mathematicians which deciphered German ciphers, but they were helped by Polish mathematicians and they were helped by the work of Polish intelligence services, which got early versions of that ciphers from Germans even before the war. That's mm-hmm. one thing. And also Polish pilots. Of course, they didn't have their planes, but Polish, but pilot experience and pilot professionalism is still very important thing. It takes a lot of time to train a pilot. They were fighting in the skies of Britain and Polish land troops were fighting in the fields of Europe. And after the war, when the war ended, first Britain handled Poland back to Soviet Union on a, just a promise that Soviet Union would do, do good to it and Soviet Union would um, have democracy there, which of course was a lie. And when it turned out that it was a lie, Churchill tried to argue that we should do something about it. But, but uh, British society was so tired of the war that they said, nah, we don't want to do anything. And that Churchill guy, he is just arguing for another war and we are tired of wars completely right now. And after that, they had 40 years of Cold War and spent huge amounts of money on trying to contain Soviet Union. But Mm -hmm. that's also understandable. And another thing is that those Polish people who were fighting on Allied side in the Second World War, and they did not want to go to Soviet Poland. That's totally understandable, right? They would be persecuted there as nationalists and bourgeois and anti-revolutionary. And that really did happen to those few who went to Soviet Poland. At least they were asking Britain to let us stay in Britain and work there. And British society said, no, we don't want 100,000 unemployed people taking our jobs. Make them go somewhere else. That's a sad story. So, and Churchill himself and the government themselves were trying to help, but the public opinion Public opinion is very short-sighted everywhere, I think. Mm. That's what is bad about humans in general. We don't think too much in the future. If we could think like 40 years in the future or 50 years in the future, the world would be better in general. We could make longer plans and we could make life better. But mostly we do not. Mostly we think about it. I'm going to be dead in... 30 years, why do I care? And we are tired right now. We don't want anything else. Ah, yeah, that brings me to another thing which I like about United States and especially Bay Area is that, interestingly, average age of people is like 10 years younger. You know, if you average age of people in Kiev or in United States, in Bay Area, average age in Kiev was like 40 and average age in Bay Area is 35. I noticed mm. that a lot of people are younger. And also an interesting attitude between people of older age. Uh, when I was in Kiev and I was like 35 or something, I was rollerblading and 
I was getting scorned by that. Like I'm an older guy, I should not be rollerblading. That's for kids. What do you think about yourself? <laughs> that never happens in the United States. <laughs> in the United States, you can judge people not by in Ukraine, they judge you. You are young, and so you have to behave like a young guy. Or you are older guy, a father of the family, and you have to behave like a father of the family. And that is changing, but those stereotypes are still in there. Um, what I notice about Americans is that they don't think about themselves mostly as young or old. They think about themselves as, um, I am attractive or not attractive on a scale of 2 10, or am I fit or not am I fit, and what can I do to get more fit? Because, and that's very positive mindset. If you are 45, there mm. is nothing you can do about being 45. That's what it is. But if you are thinking about yourself, am I fit or am I not? And what can I do to improve my fitness level? Let us, uh, that will help everybody. And why do you, I seem, yeah. I'm sorry. Well, why do you think that is? Because you're right. And that's a new thing in this country. But why do you think that is? I did not ask myself that question. I thought it just is. No, it's a new thing in this country. It wasn't always that way. <laughs> but you're right. You're absolutely right. It's it's like you can... And, and that's... You're right. That's a positive thing about our country, I think. I really think that's a positive thing. Um, what do you think about it? Why it is that way? No, I, I, I don't know, but it's, it's not the way. Okay. I don't know when that, like, I didn't write it down, you know, like I didn't write down the day that changed or the, you know, but it, that's a change. Uh, you know, I would, it happened. I would say it happened in the last 20 or 30 years, hmm. maybe 25 I don't know why. Um, well, if I, that is think... that long, I definitely did not have a chance to find out why, <laughs> except from the books or something. That's a question to you. Why? I, I never, th I mean, I thought, I've thought about it a lot, but I haven't really thought about it the way you thought about it. But you're right. But I think it's a positive thing. <laughs> Yep. Lots of people are running. Uh, maybe it's sub in, in Sarbaba. Sorry, mm -hmm. I'm getting tired a bit, I think. Oh, <laughs> no, no. You, you've been a good thing. Yeah. And lots of people are riding their bikes. And yeah, people are much more into sports here than they are in Ukraine, mm -hmm. in Kiev. And I like it. That's a positive thing. And makes you live longer one of the things which i noticed in um also in san francisco and in new york it was advertisement about health checks in subway like go get mm -hmm. your skin checked and um, maybe even in some morbid way uh, 
this lady will not get to see her granddaughter graduation because we forgot she forgot her yearly um, cancer check, mm -hmm. which is brutal way to put it, but it does make you remember that you have to do those checks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we don't have those things in Ukraine yet. People are not that forward thinking that they do not think that long ahead. And there's there's I, probably a lot of fatalism in the Ukraine that there really isn't in a lot of America. I mean, don't you think? Do you know what? Do you know that word fatalism? Yeah, of course I do. Yeah, it's and it is when you have to live through changes and they just happen. There was people were living in Soviet Union and the Soviet Union just crashed and they did not expect that to happen. Um, lots of people were happy that it crashed, of course. It was a positive event, but it was not an event we pushed for. It just happened because the Soviet Union economy collapsed. And out of that collapse, people were just trying to survive. And sometimes even on farming, um, my family bought a farm, not just a small piece of land close to the city, and it was an opposite of suburb. It was green and lush and very picturesque. But we were going there to farm potatoes during weekends. We were having, uh, well, my parents were having their work by week. And me and my sister were having our studies. And on a weekend, we commuted to that place to dig the, to dig the ground so that we would have enough food to go through the winter. That was 90s. 90s were brutal. And there was hyperinflation where um, um, currency devaluated 100 or 1,000 times. You had some savings and now you'd have none. And it does make people not believe in the future and don't care about the future much. Americans, they try to think far ahead. So like I have to save some money for college of my kids, even if I don't have kids yet. They have to save some money for pension and they have um, belief that those money will still be there when they retire and that those money would still be worth something. That belief is not always present in other places, you know. Some in Ukraine where people were have seen first their Soviet savings disappear and then hyperinflation of 90s, which also made um, saving quite difficult. They don't think that far in the future. And that also, I think that also affects um, our national movement because our national movement says we have to fight and we have to suffer so that our country would survive and we would have a brighter future 10 or 20 years later. First, we have to win the independence war. And second, we will have to rebuild our economy in a way to be not reliant on Russia. And that's a tough proposition, you know, for lots of people who do not think past few years. They say, we don't want that. 
Uh, we want just to keep going as we are going and don't touch me. Just let me live few years that I have left in peace. Um, and the more old people are there who think only about few years which are left for them, the more difficult it is to enact some change. That's why most of the revolutions and public protests are fueled by young people. Not just because young people have more energy to do that, but because young people have future ahead of them. And they are willing to mm. fight for that future. They are willing. They are thinking, I am going to live for, 40, for 50, 40 more years. <laughs> and they want to have those better lives. And they want to mm. just accept that nothing can be changed. And yeah, that's why younger people try to change things. Because they have lives to enjoy those changes. They have ability to think about the future. Hmm. You know, you're right. Um, I think there's a dynamism in this country that, that you, you know, from what I've been able to tell, like you don't really see in some other places, not every other, but, but some other places for sure. And there's an optimism uh, in America. There really is, I think. Um, Dynamism is a good word. That's yes, how yes. I would explain it. Yes. It catches yes, the yes. spirit of this country very well. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, thank you uh, so much. Um, you can come back anytime you want. Um, I, I would ask, normally I ask, is, is there something you want to tell the internet? But I'm glad I waited a week to talk to you. <laughs> I, I really am. Um, thank you. Thank you for, for coming on. Uh, is it, before we go, is there anything you want to tell the internet? One last thing? or It's okay if there's not, but we've talked for two hours, basically. <laughs> uh I don't know. Maybe all right. let's all think about the future a bit longer than a couple of years. That's all I will ask you. Of, of, oh, from, thank, of. thank you, Tim. Uh, thank you Dear much. Internet, just try to think a bit longer than you usually do. <laughs> I'm sorry, say again? Dear Internet, just try to think about a bit longer than usual people do it. That would solve so many problems for all the humanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah the idea. Try to think longer than you usually do. That's a that's a good thing to request. Okay, Tim. Um, thank you, Ben. It was a pleasure. As always, yeah. thank you, everybody. Stay on the line, Tim, until this downloads, please. <laughs>